So tonight I want to continue with and actually hopefully complete uh, these teachings on the Ten Dhammas. I never think it'll take it this long, but here we go. We're only up to the fifth one, but hopefully they'll be shorter tonight. The fifth reflection uh, is very associated with the one I finished with last time, the fourth reflection. It's, could my spiritual companions find fault with my conduct? Now, I don't know about you, but that's a big red button, hot button for for most people, for me, I'm sure. It's very related to, as I said, the fourth reflection. And in it last week, I spoke about these two uh, spiritual qualities the Buddha called the bright guardians of the Dhamma, Hiri and Otapa. Hiri is really a sense of uh, moral conscience, but it's reflected internally. It's our own sense of... Um, ethical behavior and conscience. Otapa is more that same sense of conscience, but turned outwards to recognize our place in the community, in society, and the effect our actions has on have on those relationships and on the community. And so this is the purview of this fifth reflection. This sense of living in community and needing to live in harmony in community is central to the Buddha's teachings. Um, You probably know that if one becomes a bhikkhu, a monk, in the Theravada tradition, becomes ordained, you take on 227 rules uh, uh, to guide all aspects of your conduct, how you dress, what you can do, what you can eat and when. It's all very minutely covered. And Such a level of detail, 227, just remembering it as a practice in and of itself, concentration practice. But there are many um, uh, lineages in in the Buddhist countries that are still practicing in this way where that's their main practice, really uh, following the vinaya with a great level of impeccability and detail. Here we keep it much simpler. We take the five or the eight precepts Uh, which we've talked about quite a bit, and the guidelines for helping us live in community. But uh, obviously there's many more both spoken and unspoken rules that are uh, part of living in community like this, from the manager's announcements at the beginning to the things we say often in the morning instructions, you know, all the rules that are set up about M101. There's lots of rules one needs to, or guidelines one needs to live by, Uh, to be here on retreat. And some of them are helpful and really useful, and some of them are just very uh, self-inflicted. And we can go a little crazy about this, about worrying what other people are thinking of us. And it's often an external reflection of our internal sense of lack of self-care or self-faith and trust that we think that other people are judging us and being critical of us, you know. Did I take someone's walking path or get in front of them in the tea line or whatever it might be? So to work with this practice of reflection, it's not about strengthening our self-judging or having this sense that, you know, it's a big brother surveillance kind of environment here where someone's always watching to see how fast you'll slow your walking or how much food you take or whatever it might be. You know, Homeland Security hasn't taken over IMS yet, so you don't need to worry about that. But 
we do often have a real strong sense of self-consciousness on retreat. And as I said, it coming out of this inner sense of critic that we project outwards. Um, it's not just on retreat, of course. Uh, this, this tendency to worry about what others think we take from a healthy um, respect for the, the, the uh, impact we have on others to getting really self-conscious about our actions. There's a Zen teacher who lives in the Bay Area, Yvonne Rand, who uh, says in a rather pithy way, so excuse the language, but it really captures this way we take our inner sense of critic and project it outwards and feel that everyone is always watching and judging us and that it's all a, a reflection of me. She says, I'm the piece of shit the world revolves around. And that's a little extreme, hopefully, but, you know, do you ever get that sense that when you look at your internal experience, there's a lot of judging, but when you go outwards, it's, who said that? It's all about me, you know, everything is self-referential. I read a cartoon recently, it's that, that series that's often, it's in the paper regularly, Zits, which is about a, a young teenage guy, Jeremy, and his friends and uh, parents and all of the stuff that goes on in adolescence. And Jeremy's sprawled on his bed talking to one of his friends, and he says, you know, one of the two things that really ticks me off is I never get everything I want. And the friend says, yeah, well, in case you hadn't noticed, everything isn't about you. And he go, Jeremy replies, yeah, that's the other thing. <laughs> and there is that sense that it is, it's all about me, even if we take that in a negative way, that people are watching me and judging me. That's yogi mind taken to extreme. That's not the point of this reflection. But there is a, a, a usefulness in acknowledging that we're living in community here. Uh, one of the f- the things that often happens when we live in community is we're open to that, what I consider often unwelcome opening phrase, can I give you some feedback? My usual response is, no, thank you, I don't want any feedback. But often, you know, it's something that's helpful for us to hear. Of course you're on retreat. Please don't give anyone any feedback. We're not here to be monitors of other people's mindfulness, even if we think we're being helpful or whatever you might like to guide them towards in their, op- in their op- process of awakening. Um, it's, that's not the environment we have here. But we still do have an effect on each other. We are living in community. And the way we move around here and our behavior on retreat in this environment does have an impact. So we can see both the pluses and the minuses of this. I'm sure you've all felt the strength and support of Sangha in coming and sitting in this hall and the different times when you felt not so motivated to come. Uh, after a walking period, to, the bell rings, and it's like, oh, not another sitting. But you see everyone else filing back into the hall, and it just becomes easy to kind of get into the current and come here and sit again. And so we support each other in this way. Um, we inspire each other to continue the practice. So we learn a lot about each other in this functioning of living together in community. 
Guy and I actually got together in relationship in a community. We met on a retreat. Uh, I was managing, and he was a, a yogi on the retreat. But we, we were just friends, and we just got to know each other then. But we were actually asked to begin this uh, meditation community in England in the beautiful, one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen, just outside Totnes in Devon. And when we first were invited to start the community, we were given the top floor of a Georgian mansion on the banks of the River Dart to start a meditation community, and we were the only two people there. So it was a small community that got very intimate after a while. <laughs> but gradually more people joined, and we ended up with about 11 people living in this, in this place, and we, we were there for two and a half years. And I learned a lot about myself living in community. You know, it's where you really see the rough edges and that they, you know, it's possible to have them rub, rub off a little, smooth out a little, because we had a lot of interaction. We were living together. We were working together, putting on a program of meditation events and, and retreats. And, of course, doing our own practice. Part of living there was a real commitment to practice. So I don't know how many meetings we had where we'd say, you didn't get up for the morning meditation and you can, and, you know, arguments over whether we should buy smooth or crunchy peanut butter and what to spend our meager, you know, shared allowance on this month. So we, we, there's a lot of stress that, that can come in just living that closely together. But it was a wonderful experience that I'm really glad I had and that I was really glad to leave when it was over. <laughs> But even though you fortunately don't have to have sangha meetings where you have to decide on things here, uh, as I said, we really do impact each other and can have this sense, as this reflection is uh, talking about, of caring about the regard of people we respect. And on retreat, you may notice a number of those people. Um, a good friend and teaching colleague, Howie Cohen, who practiced a lot here, with our other good friend and teaching colleague, James Barras, will often talk in his Dharma talks about seeing James practice. And James was a very, is a very diligent yogi, really serious yogi. And how he would say that he would copy him. He was so inspired by James's practice that he would literally imitate him, you know, the way a young child was sometimes imitate an older person, and really learned a lot from that, from stretching his practice in that way. And so others can inspire us, but also to remember that we're possibly inspiring someone else in the diligence of your practice, in your commitment, in your mindfulness. You mightn't know it, but you are representing something to other people here. And so it gives a different perspective on what we're doing here to see this sense of interrelatedness. James often talks at retreats about this quality of impeccability. And that's what I really think of him as a yogi. He was pretty impeccable. But it's a charged kind of word because, you know, impeccable has this connotation of being perfect. And it certainly doesn't mean that because, of course, there is no one right way to practice Going slowly isn't the right way. You know, sitting for hours on end isn't the right or the perfect way. It just means giving it your all, really being willing to show up again and again and again, 
and to hold the practice and this environment with a sense of care and appreciation to honor what's going on here, but not to take this, you know, something to hold on to, to fix around. It's really, again, this question of what would support your practice? What's impeccable for you? And what would honor the community that we've developed here? The Buddha spoke about this impact that, um, or the, the importance of association with the wise. It's something he often talked about. This is a little um, poem from the, the Dhammapada called The Awakened. How joyful to look upon the awakened and to keep company with the wise. Follow then the shining ones, the wise, the awakened, the loving, for they know how to work and forbear. But if you cannot find friend or master to go with you, travel on alone, like a king who has given away his kingdom, like an elephant in the forest. If the traveler can find a virtuous and wise companion, let her go joyfully with her joyfully and overcome the dangers of the way. Follow them as the moon follows the path of the stars. So it's, it's actually um, a beautiful reflection to have this sense of community and that there is much to learn from the people we share this space with and to look at those who who are supporting your practice with this sense of kindness and appreciation and a shared regard to know that you too are impacting them. Now after this reflection, that was the fifth one. The sixth one, there's a real shift in the tone or the content of these reflections. The sixth reflection is, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. Previously, I I see the the earlier reflections as a lot about our actions. It's a lot about learning about ourselves and how we are in this environment of intensive practice. But here it's about our understanding. It's really asking us to open to these deeper truths about the nature of reality because all that is mine, all that is beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separate, is pointing to the deepest truths, the deepest mysteries, obviously of impermanence, but also of death, of that final and ultimate letting go that we're all vulnerable to, where everything is left behind. We can take nothing with us. Though I saw this cartoon, archetypal heaven, depiction the pearly gates and this man with a big sack saying, you can't stop me now, I've gotten this far. And we all have that sense that somehow we'll get around this, you know, that something I can take with me. You know, I know a lot I'll have to, like, isn't there something? And the Buddha says, no, you know, that everything, everything we'll have to let go of. And he encourages us, the tradition encourages us to reflect on this, to reflect on the fact of our death and that letting go, to, to see, recognize the inevitable, inevitability of it. What we don't know is the circumstances or when, but we know it's inevitable. 
Don Juan in uh, teachings to Carlos Castaneda said, keep death over your left shoulder. Death is a teacher. It's really important for those of you that have had a firsthand contact with death or uh, some your own health uh, issues or someone close to you, you'll know how it radically shifts our perspective on what's important. This is a huge teacher for us. You just have to read the paper to see how fragile life is. All of the tragedies of the past year or so, the tsunami, all the wars, the battlefields, the, 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 the unimaginable um, horrors that are going on in the world, the hurricanes, New Orleans just basically being flooded and wiped off the map almost, people losing everything. It's so hard for us to contemplate what that must be like. Not just the physical possessions, because you can get a little bit of sense of that, but to really lose a way of life that the people lost down there. They lost their neighborhoods, their homes. They lost everything. So it's not just about our death or even the death of our loved ones. So that's a big part of this opening to this teaching on death because... As much as I have tried to open to it with the practices that are suggested, my own reflections, there is a way that, you know, it's very clearly, it's not happening, not now. So I I do keep it at bay. So I use my father as my teacher in this area. My father just turned 80, still lives in Australia, and I'm in touch with him regularly. My mother died about eight years ago now. So I keep in touch with my dad, and uh, I've found out, you know, known for many years that a big part of his life is death because the first thing he does every day is read the obituary, you know, who, who's died. And then his second ritual is to go to the local shopping center and get another paper and read those obituaries. And it's not only that. He actually lives in the house that I was born in, and literally born in, So he's lived there for 50 years and knows a lot of people in the neighborhood. We often joke he has a busier social life than we do. Uh, He's always going out and and doing stuff. And he's also the church organist, so he plays at the funerals that happen locally. So he's really in touch with this. And I don't know how many conversations I've had with him where I'll call up and say, you know, how are you doing? And he'll just start out, do you remember the Whites? You know, they used to live two blocks away on such and such a road, and I think you went to school with a son, and his name was so-and-so, and I'm so, oh, I think so. And, you, and they go, well, old Joe, you know, is not doing so well or into hospital or, you know, has died. And I don't, you know, we've had so many conversations about this. But what I'll notice is he doesn't usually say so-and-so has died. He's got all these euphemisms that he'll use, like, oh, so-and-so has fallen off his perch, or recently he said, you know, oh, so-and-so, past is used by date. <laughs> because I think there's just a, a tendency we all have, it's really hard to say someone's died. There's a finality in it, so we couch it in these euphemisms. I got online to look up this, and my dads weren't there. I think they're pretty good, but there were hundreds, hundreds of euphemisms for this, this fact of life that we avoid. Of, de- of death. And so it really is a reflection on keeping that in mind, keeping that in our hearts.
And of course, as I said, it's not just death, but it's all of the uh, teachings on impermanence. Carol spoke about the other night that we've mentioned again and again, just seeing all the things that we let go of over the years. We let go of relationships. We let go of the way the body functions in certain ways. We let go of work situations, excuse me, living situations. We try to hold on. We don't like it, but this is what's happening. It's impermanent. Everything, all that is mine, will become separate from me at some point. There's some deep part of ourselves that doesn't want to acknowledge that, that says, no, it's not true. Uh, This time I'll be able to hold on. This thing feels solid enough. This thing will be it, will last for me. Guy and I have really gotten this teaching uh, in being the owners of a house. Uh, We have, you know, it's in some ways a a nice house. It's in a great location on top of a hill, um, but it gets a lot of weather. In the summer, the sun really beats down. In the winter, we get huge storms, and the whole house just shakes. And so it's a nice location, but the house wasn't built that well. And all of these years, you know, and it's a 30-year-old house, it really felt like it was falling apart around us. And I've talked about this before at other retreats. I always preface by saying this is not a plea for more teacher dana, but this is just the reality of having a house. The furnace broke. The hot water thermostat went out, and the idea is it has a, a relief valve, and the hot water, you know, spews off. But the valve, the uh, pipe got broken, so it was coming out outside the house, but also into the house. So the carpets got flooded, the doors leaked, uh, the stove broke. And when we got someone to come fix it, the guy just shook his head and said, they don't make these parts anymore. You know, (laughs) it was a 30-year-old stove. The dishwasher sounds like a blender when you run it. We had termites. Um, The bathtub cracked. Uh, the septic tank, the septic system over. It was just endless. This is all in the space of the last year and a half or so. So we've just been spending a lot of time, you know, patching things together and and, uh, repairing things. Even a house, it seems so solid, it falls apart. This is the nature of things. And there's a way in which coming on retreat is a little like dying. We let go of everything that's familiar to us. You know, it's often you're familiar to IMS, but still, to the lifestyle, uh, whatever you've created at home, or, you know, even if you don't have a solid sense of home, there's a letting go of that life completely. And this becomes your new life. You're reborn into this world. So the Tibetans actually say that all of our practice is about preparing for our death. And I really think that's a powerful way to hold our practice, not in a morbid way. You know, this is not to indulge in this, but it can actually lighten our mind when we open to this truth. We're not resisting it. Ajahn Chah, that Thai meditation master, said this, How can you find right understanding? I can answer you simply by using this glass of water I am holding. It appears to us as clean and useful, something to drink from and keep for a long time. Right understanding is to see this as broken glass, as if it has already been shattered. Sooner or later, it will be shattered. If you keep this understanding while you are using it, 
that all it is is a combination of elements which come together in this form and then break apart, then no matter what happens to the glass, you will have no problem. The body is like the glass. It is also going to break apart and die. You have to understand that. Yet when you do, it doesn't mean you should go and kill yourself, just as you shouldn't take the glass and break it or throw it away. The glass is something to use until it falls apart in its own natural way. In the same way, the body, the body is a vehicle for us to use until it goes its way. Your task is to see what the natural way of things is. This understanding can make you free in all the changing circumstances of the entire world. Now, opening to this can also bring fear, that sense of really letting go, sense of emptiness, and see our tendency to use things or relationships, experiences, to fill that sense of emptiness. And that tendency is natural, but it's really important to see it's not an ultimate refuge. The Buddha talked about finding that which was beyond change, beyond death, the unconditioned. And so we use our practice to turn towards that understanding, not to hide away from it, and to really begin to find a refuge in here and now, just as it is, without holding on to it or pushing it away. This is rather dense tonight, so I hope you don't get what we call spiritual indigestion. (laughs) The next reflection is that on karma. Uh, And Steve spoke a little bit on karma the other night, and we may do another whole talk on karma, so I won't go into it a lot tonight, but just... To, to frame it in the context of these reflections. The, the text actually says, I am the owner, very traditional phrasing, I am the owner of my karma, heir to my karma, born of my karma, related to my karma, abide supported by my karma. Whatever karma I should do, for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. Now, as Steve said the other night, karma means intentional action or volitional action. There's a sort of pop understanding of uh, cultural understanding of karma that is a misunderstanding of that line, instant karma is going to get you. It's kind of like this thing that's going to trip you up and catch you out. really is essential to understand that it's about the uh, actions done with intention. And if, you know, you do something like step on an ant or an insect and don't know it, didn't intend to, that's not a karmic action really is about intention and about volition. And in the traditional teachings, it's a, there's a lot about um, rebirth and the karmic consequences that go on from birth to birth. But I don't think you need to believe in that or understand that to get the import of karma because you can just see the way we're born over and over again in the space of a day, in the, the space of an hour, take up all of these identities of, you know, in the context of retreat, being a good yogi or a bad yogi, whatever we conceive of those to be, or happy or sad or or weak or strong or healthy or sick. And if we identify with those, 
that has a karmic impact because it will condition our subsequent experiences. And a lot of you have been coming into interviews talking very skillfully about seeing this, the, these laws of cause and effect and how both there's an impersonality to it, but also, of course, there's responsibility. And to hold both of those is really to stand in the wisdom of karma. As the Buddha said, that which the mind frequently dwells and ponders upon will become the inclination of the mind. So if we tend to dwell a lot in anger or angry thoughts or judging thoughts, it's really understandable that our future moments will be impacted by that. And the same for dwelling on thoughts of kindness or love or compassion. It's as simple as that. Another important thing to recognize about the teachings on karma is it's not a teaching about blame or about anyone deserving anything to happen to them. This is not anywhere in the suttas. It's really just a a clear seeing of causes and conditions. But these causes and conditions are often more subtle than we can actually recognize Steve mentioned karma is one of the four imponderables. The Buddha said if you try to figure it out or think about it too much, it'll drive you crazy. So we don't need to figure it out in this bigger picture sense of why is this happening to me, but on very simple levels to to have this recognition. Tanasaro, and it's not fatalistic. You often hear people say in in a heavy kind of way, well, it's just my karma, I'm lumped with this. This is also not the meaning Tanasaro Bhikkhu says that instead of promoting resigned powerlessness, the Buddhist notion of karma focused on the, focuses on the liberating potential of what the mind is doing with every moment. Who you are, what, what you came from, is not anywhere near as important as the mind's motives for what it is doing right now. So there is this recognition of the causes and conditions that brought us to this moment, and some understanding of that can be helpful. But what's most important is what you do with that, how you hold that, and what actions it leads you into next. That's the power and the the, uh, possibility of freedom that karma and the teachings on karma shows us. And once we start to reflect in this way, we see the importance of mindfulness. We see how necessary it is to wake up to our intentions and our actions. Because this is at the heart of this teaching. I used this um, little Buddha saying, uh, one of my talks a little while ago, but it's so key, I thought I'd repeat it uh, uh, in relationship to this teaching on karma. The thought manifests as word. The word manifests as deed. The deed develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care, and let it spring from love, born of con- out of concern for all beings. And it's, it's so useful because it has that spiraling effect. When there's not mindfulness, and we're not recognizing uh, the direction that we're heading in, we can harden all kinds of karmic patterns, habit patterns. If there's care and concern and love, then there's a chance 
for freedom and to develop these beautiful qualities that we've spoken about. So that's a very short uh, reflection on karma. As I said, more in relationship to our practice here and and in the context of uh, this sutta. Actually, as I go through, all of these are a little triggering. You can sort of think, oh, what about this one? The eighth one, the days and nights are relentlessly passing. How well am I spending my time? Whenever I read that one, I always think of the sh- those, those big signs in shopping centers, you know, only X days until Christmas, X shopping days until Christmas. And you always say, oh, I haven't done enough. I haven't started. It's like, got to get going. And that's exactly what that's intended to do is uh, get us all motivated to go shopping. Not having, don't want to have to even deal with that. But it's interesting when you bring up a reflection like this, the different relationships we can have to time on retreat, you know, from, oh, no, only X weeks to go. Phew, finally, only X weeks to go, you know, being elated or completely dismayed with the same length of time, depending on whether you just had a good sitting or a bad sitting. It's totally relational. It's totally subjective. And, you know, as we think about the end of retreat, not that it's anywhere near close, but that sense of time passing, it's kind of like exams are looming, you know. Am I going to pass or fail? Am I succeeding here? And it's just so conditioned in ourselves to judge our practice in this way. Uh, There's this great cartoon someone gave me on a retreat last February, um, it's called the pet calendar, and it's got a dog tearing a day, a day off a calendar and the cat's beside his side, and the page in his hand says now, and the page he's tearing off says now. You know? And it's just, that's it for dogs and animals. Every moment is now. But we have this infallible, not infallible, we have this tendency to topple into the future and to have this sense of constriction and worry and fear and anxiety of planning and, you know, what should I be doing? And a lot of worry and and dread about the future coming, the end of retreat or whatever it might be that's out there. This is when we get into, again, yogi mind or it's a little distorted, it's a little almost neurotic. What this reflection is pointing to as a wholesome spiritual quality is the um, quality known as samvega. It's, the short translation is spiritual urgency. It's a great term, but it's one that's a bit of a two-edged sword because, again, we can use it to beat ourselves up, that we're not doing enough, we're not trying hard enough. This is not the sense. It's really about using our time well. Tanasaro Bhikkhu, who I quoted from earlier, uh, has this little paragraph about Sambhaga. And he's never one to mince words, so here's um, Tanjef on Sambhaga. It's a hard word to translate because it covers such a complex range, at least three clusters of feelings at once. The oppressive sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that that come with realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. A chastening sense of our own complacency and foolishness in having let ourselves live so blindly, 
and an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of the meaningless cycle. So I don't know if that makes you feel any better. It it doesn't really for me because it's so strong, but that's a little bit of what Sambega is about, but really to to use this uh, energy in a way that supports your practice, not to beat yourself up. The suttas talk about this in the Nguttara. They talk about four dangers in our practice. Danger number one, death threatens from all sides. Danger number two, the conditions for practice may never again be so good. And just think, next time you're kvetching about something, you never know. This may be as good as it gets. I'll refer to that a little later on. Danger number three, there may not always be good teachers around. Danger number four, the sangha may someday decline. We just don't know. So there is this um, importance in really appreciating the preciousness of our time here together and honoring it uh, to see that there is a, a uniqueness to this time. The Buddha talked about his, um, not awakening, his, it was a waking up out of his slumber of, uh, in his life as a prince. I mean, it's really this, the shock and dismay that came with seeing the futility of his lay life, his worldly life and all its indulgences through what he called the four heavenly messengers of old age, sickness, death, and then a mendicant or a monk. And his reflection as he saw all of these and realized that this too would happen to him, that he would get old, get sick, and die, he wanted to find a way out. He said, how can anyone live knowing that's going to happen to them? And so the formulation that one of the texts, it's not in the suttas, but one of the the sort of stories of the Buddha's life gives that the Buddha said when he reflected on, on old age and that it was going to happen to him, He gave up the vanity of youth. When he reflected on sickness, he gave up the vanity of health. And when he reflected on death, he gave up the vanity of being alive. And I thought that's such an interesting way to hold it because there is a way that it's, you know, it's like, oh yeah, I'm I'm doing okay. I'm doing good. I'm still alive. But we're all subject to this. And to really let that in and to let it inform your practice, to how to, to open to this sense of urgency, but not to be, to use wise effort. Steve spoke a lot about this the other, other night. It's not using this to beat yourself up or to judge your practice. You know, I should be further along by now. I should be deeper or calmer or wiser or less of this and more of that. Just to say it's really hard to judge your practice in the middle of a long retreat. Our reference points just shift so completely that it's a very futile exercise. So if you find yourself doing it, please let go. You'll save yourself a lot of heartache. It's not a test. It's not about achieving anything. It's really about cultivating um, an appreciation for yourself, definitely, and all the hard work you have put in so far, your willingness to be here moment after moment, hour after hour, to see that it's not about any special experiences. 
of ecstasy or bliss, lightning bolts. It really is simply more kindness and more clarity. It's a, it's a very simple practice in a way. We've talked about these qualities of vitaka and vichara, just aiming and sustaining. That's all we need to take care of, connecting with our experience and sustaining for the length of that in-breath or out-breath or step or bite of food. That's all you need to do to be fully engaged in using your time wisely here. Mary Oliver has this great poem. Many of you know, I'm sure, but I just enjoy it so much, that speaks about this, both the simplicity and the depth that comes in just being with your experience in this way, the summer day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass. The one who is eating sugar out of my hand. Who is moving her jaw back and forth instead of up and down who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? But all she says we need to do is pay attention, kneel down, and be fully present. That's all we need to do. The ninth reflection is, do I delight in solitude? And again, this is interesting because uh, meditation tends to attract introverts. I don't know if you've noticed. You know, we like to sit and close our eyes and go inward, and that's a very introverted thing to do. We're not obviously all introverts, but there are many extroverts as well, but there is a tendency Uh, that those of us who love silence and solitude, nothing better than coming on a retreat where that's all that happens is more silence and more solitude. It's often interesting to me when I tell people about a retreat and that it's in silence, the first thing they say is, that's not possible. You know, how can you go for a week or ten, three months without speaking? It's like, unfathomable to some people or or they'll say to me oh my friends say you can never do it you know that I just need to connect and speak I could never do that and even those people when they actually finally come on retreat find that the silence and that um, uh, invitation to just go inwards and not be so involved socially is actually the most beautiful thing about a retreat. It's, it's the biggest gift that we get on retreat, that, that uh, being able to drop the social persona for a while and just be fully with ourselves. 
Now, even as much as I appreciate that, because I am an introvert very clearly, um, it's also hard on a long retreat. It's lonely. I remember doing my first long retreat here and you know, not being a very extroverted person, not being very emotional, really wanting a hug from someone, you know, wanting that contact because I felt so alone month after month just with myself. So it's understandable that we can feel lonely on retreats. But the practices or the invitation is, can we learn to distinguish being alone and being lonely? That there's a way in which we can come into our own inner sense of self that uh, we can be alone and yet not lonely. Stephen Batchelor, good friend and a Dharma teacher, has this great book called Alone with Others. It's an exploration of these themes, and uh, part of the book is about the difference between having and being. And so much of our lives revolve around having or getting, having things, getting experiences, having relationships. And in meditation, it's so much about learning just to be, very simply, with what is the way it is. What we learn, though, as we open to these deeper truths is there is a fundamental way in which we're essentially alone. No one can ever really know us. As much as we might look for that connection, that merging, no one can ever truly know us, know our inner experience, just as we can't know another's. As close as we might get, as much as we might share, there's a mystery here at the heart of this. And so this is a truth. On the, you know, on the, the greatest experience of, is of our life, we're alone at our birth, at our death. They're essentially alone. We don't share those with others in that immediate way. But we need not be lonely. Once we discover a relationship to ourselves, it's one of faith and trust. On retreat, we're our only constant companions. So a few of you have talked about coming in and these inner dialogues that you can have of bickering and arguing and teaching and reprimanding or whatever it might be. I often think that coming on retreat, it's like one of those road movies, you know, where a couple of people set out on a journey and at first they really don't get on and it's like, do this, no, do it that way, no, don't do it that way, we've got to go here, no, go there. And they're always bickering and arguing and trying to break up from each other and being forced back together. And as happens in those road movies, after time, you kind of, oh, Perhaps you're not so bad after all, or, you know, that was useful, that thing you said, and maybe I can learn something from you. And in the end, you know, they're the best of buddies. It's a little bit like that on retreat. What we're learning to do is be our own best buddy, be our own traveling companion, and find this synthesis where there's not a sense of being pushed and pulled by our conflicted inner experience, but we're actually at one, at ease, at home, in our inner experience. This is what can happen, this healthy relationship.
And so to see this journey um, it is one of solitude in a way, but what we're discovering is our best friend, our truest friend, and finding a refuge here in ourselves, in our innermost being. And then the last of these reflections again can catch us a little. Has my practice borne fruit with freedom or insight so that at the end of my life I need not feel ashamed when questioned by my spiritual companions? Well, or even at the end of the retreat, you know, in some ways we dread the end of the retreat and everyone's going to go, how was your retreat? Well, how was your retreat? It's like already planning, what am I going to say? Kind of packaging it up so it feels okay or it looks, looks good to someone else. We've, believe me, we've figured this out already. I'll give you the preempt all of this. All you need to say when someone says, how was your retreat? Great. Most people don't want to hear more than that. But we have this expectation that out of this process, it's so much work and we give so much to it, we should be a different person, shouldn't we? Something should change. Got to get something out of this. But as Ajahn Sumedha wisely says, it's not your, your personality doesn't get enlightened. It's something more mysterious than that. For the good or ill, we tend to take our personality along with us. This is what we have to become friends with in this road trip that we're taking. Jack Cornfield over at Spirit Rock recently uh, had his 60th birthday. We had a big celebration at Spirit Rock, and people did all kinds of things and little sayings and tributes. And you probably know Jack has a book called After the Ecstasy, The Laundry. And it's a book about you know people who've had uh, awakening experiences, but then you know they have to live their lives. They have to you know, do do the laundry and go shopping and have relationships and how difficult that can be. And someone drew this little cartoon, and you could tell it was Jack sitting there, quizzical. And it, the c- caption was the de- dilemma of the sexagenarian guru: was that before, after, or instead of the ecstasy? And it can feel like that. Sometimes we're not getting any ecstasy. You know, this is instead of the ecstasy. This is what I'm getting. But this is, as I said earlier, it's not about ecstasy or any special experience. Chinul, the Korean Zen master, uh, in his book, where the theme is, uh, he's a 12th century master, Tracing Back the Radiance, talks about this sudden awakening, gradual cultivation, And it's all about recognizing the mind's natural radiance, having waking up to that, but then learning, he says, learning to act as well as be enlightened. And they're two very different things, integrating our openings and really appreciating this wild and precious life that we have that Mary Oliver spoke about. So it's not about judging your practice or tests or um, getting to some place or some special experience. It's really about your own inner experience and discovering a wholeness, uh, an authenticity in that just the way it is. It's how we live our lives. It's not what experiences we've had. And there is this possibility, of course, of more freedom 
and greater contentment, but it's not something we can measure. The Dalai Lama says he's often asked, you know, does, has your practice changed you? And here's someone, you know, who's as dedicated as anyone I can imagine, practices for hours every day. And he, he, he answers so thoughtfully, he said, hmm, you know, if I look back five years, a year or two or five years even, I, I have to say, no, it hasn't changed me very much. But if I look back 10 years or 15 or 20, then I could say, yes, yes, I have noticed some change. So that's the big picture that we need to use in our practice. Not that this retreat is going to do it or we need to get to that place or that experience. Just as it is to, to realize how precious this is to practice in this way. In the Zen tradition, they have this understanding very clearly that we practice just to practice. Suzuki Roshi in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. While you are continuing this practice, week after week, year after year, your experience will become deeper and deeper, and your experience will cover everything you do in your everyday life. The most important thing is to forget all gaining ideas or dualistic ideas. In other words, just practice zazen in a certain posture. Do not think about anything. Just remain on your cushion without expecting anything. Then eventually you will resume your own true nature. That is to say, your own true nature resumes itself. So it's very simple in a way. We just sit to sit and awaken in what is, not looking for anything different. I want to end with another poem that speaks to this, how simple it is in the mystery. It's called The Little Duck. It's written by uh, Donald Babcock in 1947. Now we are ready to look at something pretty special. It is a duck riding the ocean a hundred feet beyond the surf. No, it isn't a gull. A gull always has a raucous touch about him. This is some sort of duck, and he cuddles in the swells. He isn't cold, and he is thinking things over. There is a big heaving in the Atlantic, and he is part of it. He looks a bit like a Mandarin or the Lord Buddha meditating under the bow tree, but he is hardly enough above the eyes to be a philosopher. He has poise, however, which is what philosophers must have. He can rest while the Atlantic heaves because he rests in the Atlantic. Probably he doesn't know how large the ocean is, and neither do you, but he realizes it. And what does he do, I ask you? He sits down in it. He reposes in the immediate as if it were infinity which it is. That is religion, and the duck has it. He has made himself part of the boundless by easing himself into it, just where it touches him. The people of the Middle Ages were more like this duck than we are. They took life as it presented itself and ran it up in spires of Gothic. They crossed few oceans, but they floated on the sea of time, And a cat is more like this duck than we are. We can radio to the moon and get back a pip for an answer, but a cat can make a hearthrug a haven in the infinite 
or launch four kittens into life in a cracker box by the furnace, purring with pride because she is tuned in on cosmic waves. I like the little duck. He doesn't know much, but he has religion. Let's just sit together for a minute. The little duck reposes in the immediate as if it were infinity, which it is. That is religion, and the duck has it. He has made himself part of the boundless by easing himself into it just where it touches him. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.